<clears throat> okay, yeah, it looks like we're live. Okay, um, welcome everyone to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we're talking about election with Jonathan Williams. The question that we're trying to answer is, uh, does God unconditionally elect some to salvation uh, and others to damnation? So stay with us, and we are going to get into it. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, so yeah, again, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs. And let me get the camera back over here to Jonathan Williams. Jonathan Williams, welcome back, man. It's good to have you. And uh, Thank you, Joshua. Yeah. So we actually, we talked about this briefly in our last podcast and said, hey, if we get a chance, let's make this happen. And uh, so we kind of just worked it out that uh, we're going to be talking about the do doctrine of election today. So um, I'm excited about it. I think this is this area is something that our uh, this channel um, really, I, I think, is something we spend some time on here. Uh, we have a lot of dialogue with both Calvinists, Arminians, uh, um, Catholics. I mean, there's just a, a wide range of, of people that this is relevant for. So anyways, why don't you just kind of give us an introduction on um, um, why the doctrine of election is important and kind of what we expect to get out of this conversation today. Okay. Uh, well, it's important because uh, the Bible talks about God making choices, uh, yeah. God choosing, uh, and that he is sovereign. And so because it's biblical and because it's part of the character of God and the nature of God, therefore it's important. And so it behooves us to study God's word and to learn what this doctrine is all about. If we want to know him better and his plans for the world. Yeah. My, uh, if I could now, this is a good time, just give a, a little bit of background to this. Absolutely. Uh, to to uh, my personal beliefs and how my beliefs have changed through the years. That would be That'd great. Be yeah. If you, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was uh, raised, I'm uh, from San Antonio, and I was raised here in San, born and raised here in San Antonio, Texas. And um, my parents uh, love the Lord, and, and they're the ones who led me to Christ uh, when I was five years old. And we went to, uh, mostly, we went to small, uh, independent fundamentalist Baptist churches. We weren't affiliated with Southern Baptists or any big denomination, but they were just independent Baptist churches. 
And we never heard anything uh, about the doctrine of election. When any, if anybody ever talked about election, they, they thought they were talking about the presidential election. So uh, no, nobody knew anything about it. And in our the churches that we went to, what we were used to was Sunday sermons that presented the gospel and there would be an altar call and whosoever will may come. Yeah. And we thought everybody believed that. Well, when I was 14, my parents uh, pulled me out of public school and they put me into a private Christian school. And that was connected to a Bible church. And we had never heard expository Bible teaching verse by verse. And we were just enamored by it. Mm -hmm. And it fed us uh, so richly. The pastor of that church, Dr. Dwayne Edward Spencer, uh, was discovering Calvinism during that time. And he was going through the book of Romans verse by verse. And so when he got to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, and especially when he got to Romans 9 through 11, he began expounding the doctrine of, of election, unconditional election. And so a lot of people were really surprised by it. But um, as we looked at the verses and the way he was interpreting them, we thought that yeah, that's what it says. Uh, he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have, uh, and then he will harden those whom he pleases, or something along yeah. those lines. It was nine seventeen, nine eighteen, I believe. And so uh, I became a Calvinist uh, at the ripe old age of sixteen, <laughs> and so, uh, and I became an arguing Calvinist. Okay. Uh, I just love to debate it, um, and those holdouts, those people who are not submitted to the Word of God, I would just really argue with him, and I had a good time with it, and mostly I was in the flesh when I was doing that. <laughs> so, uh, so I switched to Calvinism, although I will say that I never became a five-pointer. Okay. I never could swallow limited atonement That's just so. because— and, I, and as I look back, I'm happy to say this. My commitment was not to a system of theology as much as it was commitment to the plain teaching of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And so when the Bible says that God so loved the world, I, I took the world to be the world and not not a synonym for the elect. Right, okay. When, when, it's, when it says a Christ... Uh, uh, he's the savior of all of all men, especially those who believe. I, I took all men to be all men. Mm -hmm. And so I, I never could swallow limited atonement, but uh, I did subscribe to the other points. So I, I was a Calvinist. So I guess my question is um, kind of leading from that point to limited atonement. How How is it that you were able to, to reconcile um, unconditional election, but not not link unconditional election to limited atonement. How's that kind of related in your story? I just believed that uh, Christ's uh, death was sufficient for everyone, mm -hmm. uh, but it was applied to the elect. Okay. So he, he died for the non-elect also, and I, I chose not to get into philosophical realms or to try to answer questions that the Bible was not asking. Okay. So that that's how I did it, and I just yeah. said, "Look, it says that that First uh, Timothy two, he is the um, he gave himself a ransom for all." Yeah. So I, I just took it. So that's how I did it. I, I, I just kept it pretty simple. So it, you don't hold the same position today that you did 
when you were introduced to it when you were 16. So how long did you um, hold to unconditional election and, and what did it look like um, when you were kind of hearing the other side of it, that this may yeah. not be what the Bible is actually teaching? And what does that look like? What did that look like for you? Yeah, well, as I said, I was probably about 16 um, when I began to hold to most of the doctrines of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably about the age of 20, somewhere in between 20 and 22, I began to abandon uh, unconditional election. And the reason I did is not because I saw or was even reading Arminian books mm -hmm. um, that were arguing against it. But as I studied scripture, I began studying the kingdom of God. And I began to see that the Bible is much more than a repository of doctrine. Yes, there are doctrines in it. But I, I, I begin to see that the Bible is an, has an overarching story to it. And it's the story of uh, the kingdom of God and how uh, God's reign upon earth through humanity was lost through the fall. It was lost through sin. And... Uh, and the promises to Abraham and to the other patriarchs and to the prophets were, were all about the restoration of man's sovereignty on earth underneath the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. And so the, the narrative of scripture was about the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. And so as I saw that, that the Bible is primarily a story the Bible is primarily a narrative, and that that narrative um, really got a big jump start through Abraham when God chose Abraham. I, I I began to say, wait a minute, the doctrine of election doesn't fit with the narrative, mm. and that was that was the first big hole in unconditional election. So I saw that God's choice of Abraham was was inclusive and not exclusive. I see. Uh, and, and so specifically, Genesis 12, 3 says, uh, the climax of the Abrahamic covenant, covenant is that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. And so that got me to thinking, okay, what's this about, this doctrine of election? Do you have another question or shall yeah, I continue? No, that's good. Um, so I think that's, um, there's, there's, some of the, the kind of the keywords that you used are keywords that may be defined differently by a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist. One of those words being um, sovereignty, and 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 you you did mention well, God is sovereign, but He set up the world so that man is sovereign under God's sovereignty. Correct. Could you kind of explain and unpack what you mean uh, when you when you said that? A lot of it has to do with understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. God, as, as image bearers, God made us to, to reflect his image. But, but to have his image means that we have the ability to think. We have the ability to choose. We have uh, the ability to feel emotion the way the animals do not. And so God is most glorified when humanity exercises the faculties that God has given it underneath his sovereignty. So it does not diminish the sovereignty of God when he says, you make the choice. Yeah, I, I give it to you freely. And, 
an example that we have right at the beginning of the biblical story is in Genesis 2, which says that God brought all the animals to Adam for him to name the animals. And we know uh, in the ancient world and biblically that name that naming something means that you have ownership of that. Yeah. And so God is bringing the animals to Adam and saying, you're the owner, you're the steward underneath me. But you name them, you use the creativity that you have to give them appropriate names. And so that's using our faculties. And when we do that, it brings glory to God. It does not diminish the glory of God. Yeah, no, that's good. I think, uh, and, and I think that you and I would agree, see, um, I, I really do like the way that Leighton Flowers defines and uses the term um, the sovereignty of God, or just sovereign in general. It, it Being sovereign doesn't mean that you are uh, deterministic in every every um, thought, action, and deed that happens under your control. It just means that you're you're sovereign. You're independent. You are in control. And when when we talk about the sovereignty of God, I like to think that that um, God being in control, uh, God being sovereign, can choose how He would like to rule. And that does not mean that He, he that He does choose. Um, to deterministically um, control every thought, action, indeed, but that he can set up, um, he he can allow the free will choice of of humans under his sovereign power, and yet that doesn't mean that um, that man is a hundred percent independent of God, and it doesn't mean that uh, that man is outside of God's control, but it also doesn't mean that that we are absolutely determined and controlled by um, by everything that we say and do by what God has determined for us to do. So I think there's kind of two sides of, of the road yes. there that you can fall into, a, a ditch on this side, a ditch on this side. Um, Correct. But when, when it comes to the conversation of man actually having a choice um, in anything, I mean, I mean, say it's since in this particular conversation we're talking about salvation, um, what would you... What, what would you say to someone who says, well, it, God cannot be in control and man have free will at the same time? What do you, how do you deal with those those two paradigms there? Well, I, I, well normally I just say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm done with it. <laughs> but uh, for those who, are, who want to be a little bit more thoughtful of it, I, I just think it, what's so helpful is to use the analogy of the family. Yeah. So uh, I, I have three children. They're, they're all adults now and grown. But my goal as a father, and I was sovereign in my family, yeah. I was the head of the household, but my goal was not to control every little thing that they did. My control was to cultivate them so that they could think independently and one day mm -hmm. live independent, not independently of me. Now, that kind of independence is not a rebellious independence, but as full-fledged adults. Yeah. And, and I think it's the same way in our relationship with God. God does not want to determine every little thought that we have. He, he says, use your mind that I've given you. Yeah. So that, that, that's one of the ways that I do it by just using that analogy. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that the practical side of that doctrine. I think your theology absolutely 100% um, carries over into or at least should carry over into how you live your life. On a practical yes. level, and I think, I think that it, the way that you you are using this analogy in comparison to the family, I think that's probably the best way to look at it. I mean, because if we're going to model our family 
after the way that we believe that God has modeled his family, then I I think that's something to seriously consider. I mean, how do you hold your kids responsible for something that you have determined for them to do? You know, and and I think that um, seems very contradictory to say, well, God does it this way, but I would never do it that way in my own family. Um, Right. you know, I just I think that's something to seriously consider when when you think about um, the the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of you and your household, and the free will um, of man. I think ultimately God does give us a choice, and he he gives us um, the good outcomes and the bad outcomes of those choices, and that we are responsible for our, the results of our choices because we could have we could have done otherwise. But yeah. um, what, what would you would you have anything to say about that? Um, uh, well, I you're uh, expressing it very well, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I um, I had an an experience uh, a few years ago. I, I was struggling with some area in my life, and and um, and I, I just really needed to obey the Lord. Yeah. And I had this, I didn't hear a voice or anything, but I just had this really strong sense that God was speaking to me and saying, Jonathan, I'm not going to obey for you. <laughs> you have to yeah. obey. Yeah, that's You're good. responsible. You obey. And it was because I kept praying, God, help me with this. Help me. Please overcome this. You know, okay, I will. But when it gets down to it, you have to obey. I'm not yeah. going to obey for you. So. Uh, that really had a profound impact upon my life. It didn't shape my theology so much, but it, it had a profound impact, and I think it does apply to the situation. That's good. Uh, yeah, Leighton late, uh, Flowers, uh, he has uh, some material. I took a class from him. He uses the phrase meticulous control. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's a good one, that, that, that sovereignty is not meticulous control of everything sovereignty is that god is the ultimate authority Mm -hmm. and that his will will ultimately be done on earth as it is done in heaven that's what sovereignty is about yep yeah um okay so now let's let's get it what is election uh what is the doctrine of election and um where do we go from here in this conversation about election before I answer that question, can, can we back up one step? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. in our conversation, uh, um, I can hear Calvinists saying, oh, okay, I, I agree with that about the image of God. Uh, I agree with that, that God created us with the ability to make choices, but we lost it in the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we now have an inability to choose right. God. So it leads to the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. And so for anyone listening who might be having that question and saying, yeah, but I just want to say, if we could just put that conversation on hold and maybe that would be another interesting, I would love to have that conversation (laughs) at another time and just kind of stick with election. But I, I realize that that is a, a caveat from the, the Calvinist side, and we do have to deal and understand the doctrine of total depravity. Yeah. But but now let, let us indeed uh, go in, into greater detail on, on election. So ask your okay. question to yeah. me again. Um, so what what is election? How do you define election? And uh, where do we go to kind of um, to transition to the, the, the aspect of election within 
um, the terms that the Bible uses it. Is it, uh, you know, obviously, so we'll define election, we'll, we'll see how the Bible uses it, and uh, I guess kind of talk about where we go from there as it relates okay. to the doctrine of salvation. How's election related? Okay. Well, you asked, let's see how the Bible uses it. So yes. as I was going through my journey from uh, a fundamentalist free will Baptist to a uh, reformed uh, four-point Calvinist to someone who began to see uh, that the kingdom has been inaugurated and that I was having a hard time fitting the doctrine of election into the narrative of Scripture. It just didn't seem to fit. And I think in our previous uh, conversation, I, I said it was kind of like putting the, the proverbial square peg into the round hole. Right. Yeah. Um, so what I did then to try to uh, deal with this conflict I was seeing was that I went to the Bible. And so I looked up every verse in the Old Testament where the word uh, choose or chose or chosen is used. I, I looked up every verse, got up my Strong's Concordance at that time. And um, here's what I discovered. Mm -hmm. There is not one verse in the Old Testament that advocates the doctrine of unconditional election. Hmm. Not one. And that was a real eye-opener for me. Um, when it's talking about election, it, it uses it in many ways. It can be speaking of the choice of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. But the purpose of that choice was for the sake of others, that all the families of the earth might be saved. Uh, it can talk about the election of Israel, but that the election of Israel as the elect nation was for the sake of the world. Mm -hmm. And so we look at um, the prophecies of uh, Isaiah. I believe there's one in Isaiah 49. It might be verse 9 or verse 10 where God speaking to uh, Israel says, you are my servant yeah. to be a my chosen one to proclaim my name to the nations or something along those, those lines. I forget the exact wording. Yeah, I've got Isaiah 44, 1 and 2, and then Isaiah 49, okay. 7. 44, 1 and 2 says, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus mm -hmm. says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, you will help, uh, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. And you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And then 49.7 says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Yes, that's right. And, and in those verses that you mentioned, the, one of the things that I, I meant uh, that I saw was the uh, parallelism between being chosen and being a servant. Yeah. Israel was chosen to be a servant That's nation, good. the servant of God for the sake of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a couple of things on that. I uh, There's this book that actually Leighton Flowers recommended. It is uh, How the Bible Defines Election. Clearing the mm -hmm. Muddied Waters of Calvinism, and this is a book uh, by Caleb Bulow. I think I'm, I might be pronouncing that wrong, but 
Yeah. Um, you can find that on Kindle. I don't remember how much I paid for it, but it, it's really good. So he actually goes through and uses, uh, he, he actually lists every verse in the Bible that deals with election, and he categorizes each one. So there's people that are chosen by God, and he categorizes it for both Old Testament and New Testament. There's places in the Old Testament. There's things. Uh, mm -hmm. There's man who is chosen in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then there's other various ways that that uh, chosen and election are used throughout the Bible. Um, and I think that he's come to the same conclusion that you have, that every time the word elect, election, chosen, um, choose, those words are, are used, um, they're, they're using a descriptive um, purpose for something that they're chosen to do. So it could be service, it could be um, a corporate entity, it could be an individual chosen to do something, and there's all of these different examples of uses, but um, I guess when it comes to election, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's different words that are used um, in Hebrew or Greek or English, whatever, um, whatever whatever language it is, I think, but it, ultimately it comes down to whether or not you would say that it's uh, being chosen to salvation, whether it's be cho being chosen to service, or whether even to the next level of the conversation, is it a corporate choosing or is it an individual choosing? But um, how would you take that? Where do you where do you go with the conversation of election and being chosen? to um, service or salvation or to the, the, the corporate side of the conversation versus the individual side of the conversation? Well, I, I think that that's a very good question. I think those who say, no, no, don't give me this thing about corporate election, it's individual election. I think the first mistake in that uh, counter argument from our Calvinist brethren is that they don't understand the ancient world. Yeah. Life was corporate. And the the individual, yes, there, there, was, um, uh, there was individual reality and consciousness, of course. But your uh, significance and your purpose was fully experience only in relationship to the the clan or the tribe or the nation to which you belonged yeah. there is a corporate solidarity that we in western civilization do not understand and do not experience very much yeah. and so um uh, when, when we talk about corporate election we're talking about god's election of israel and that was one of the, the, the main things that I saw in my studies of the uh, Old Testament, that it was Israel as a people that were chosen. And again, they were chosen for the sake of the nations, that the nations might come back in. That was the plan of God. That's good. Um, okay, so you're saying, you're saying that uh, election in the Old Testament was understood through corporate election as being chosen to bring other nations and other families back to God as opposed to... Now, what, what would you say to someone who would say, well, of course it's, it's going to be in, in the conversation and use of corporate election for a purpose of bringing other nations and families back to God, but those nations and families are made up of individuals and you, you can't get around electing a corporate 
um, individual without it electing um, an individual within the corporate side of the conversation. So what would you say to someone who says um, you can't have the corporate side of election without the individual side? Well, first I would say, okay, well, show me the verses about individual election. That's the first thing. Yeah. But, but when we get into the theology of it or the philosophy of it, um, I, I say it this way. Uh, I am an elect person. I am an elect individual. But the reason I am individually elect is because I am connected to the body. Right. Because because I am in that corporate group that God has chosen to stand before him holy and blameless one day. And that body is those who are in Christ. Right. So th that's how I, I try to address it. Now, I, we can get to individual verses and uh, kind of dive a little deeper if you want to. And I think that would be... Um, that would be beneficial in the conversation. I don't know, but I, I don't know. Since this is kind of, we're just, we're just talking. We're just sitting down and having a conversation. We didn't plan out or write out uh, exactly what the the dialogue is going to look like or a structure. We're just well, kind of winging I, I this. I did write out a few things before we talk, so okay. I, I, I will confess that. <laughs> well, then let I'll just let you run with it. Like, um, let's just go. Where are we going next in the conversation, then? All right. Um, well, uh, let me let me go back to what what was changing my thinking. So as I studied all of those Old Testament verses uh, on election and did not find one verse about individual election and salvation, uh, then I thought, okay, how did the gospel writers and how did uh, the writers of the epistles, what informed them about election? And what informed them was the Old Testament. And, mm -hmm. and so one of the, the things I was doing in, in my studies, especially in my 20s, is I was making connections between New Testament doctrines and the Old Testament antecedents and getting the Old Testament background to it. And so I thought, you know, if we're going to understand election, we have to understand the Old Testament background. So anyway, we don't find any verses in the Old Testament. And, and by the way, I'm running a paper for my seminary class for my Ph.D. studies uh, on, on Romans 9, 6 through 13. I, uh, and I'm interacting with John Piper's excellent book, The Justification of God. And mm -hmm. as we know, Piper takes is a five-point Calvinist. Yeah. And so uh, I discovered that Piper, in a footnote, acknowledges that there is very little, he says, he says a paucity or very little in the Old Testament about, about individual election. He acknowledges it. It's just not there. He says, if you want to go to the Old Testament and look for individual election, you're really not going to find it. And of course, I, I don't think he went quite for, far enough. It's not that you find very little. You find nothing uh, yeah. in it. But Piper himself acknowledged that you really, you're not, you're, basically, you're not going to find it. So you're not going to find it in the Apocrypha. You're not going to find anything in the Apocrypha about individual election. You're not going to find anything in Qumran, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, about individual election to salvation. Now, there's some things in Qumran about predestination, but it's a far cry from, any, from anything related to Calvinism. So nothing in the Old Testament, nothing in the Apocrypha, nothing in Qumran, nothing in the pseudepigraphal writings, nothing in a, any apocalyptic writings, nothing is there. Then when we look at rabbinic writings, uh, 
after AD 70, when uh, the Jews begin to develop the, is it the Mishnah? Um, anyway, go into all of their traditions. When they, when they left the revolutionary zeal and when they just focus on reinterpreting the Old Testament, you, you find nothing in there about individual election to salvation. So my question is, if we have this survey of all ancient literature that is either biblical or related to the Bible, and if there is nothing about individual election in all those writings, where did it come from? Is this a new revelation that Paul got? Does he ever in his writings talk about—now, he talks about the mystery, but for Paul, the mystery is— that Gentiles and Jews are on equal footing in the yeah. body of Christ. That's the mystery. He never uses it in regard to, now here's a new doctrine of election that I want to share with you, mm -hmm. previously unknown, but now revealed to me. You will not find it. Now, how important... And, and then let me. Then my last point, mm -hmm. and then I'll let you speak, Joshua, oh, you're sorry. <laughs> my, my last point is, when we look at church history, you don't find it up until the time of Augustine. And so from the apostolic fathers, they will use the word elect, but but that word elect is more in the Old Testament sense of this corporate election. So the apostolic fathers on to uh, others like uh, Tertullian and, and Irenaeus, none of them spoke of this. Augustine was the first one, and we are 400 years removed from from uh, the writings of the apostles, yeah. he was the first. Okay, so let's say let's say that someone is just determined. Okay, to take you at your word, it's you won't find it in the Old Testament. You won't find it in the Pseudepigrapha. You won't find it in the Apocrypha. You, you won't find it in the intertestamental period. You won't find it. You won't find it up until Augustine. Now, why? Let, let's just say that that's, that's true. Someone goes and does all the research and, and finds out that's true. Okay, we grant that's true. Well, why is that, um, why is that such a valuable piece of information? Why is the historical um, doctrine of, of what election is being taught throughout history, why is that important to us today? Why can't we just say, you know what, we find it in the Bible, and we do see it in Augustine. We do see it after Augustine. Why can't we just take what was written... Um, and discovered through reading the Bible, and it's in the Bible, why can't we just take it there and, instead of the historical narrative and say it was never taught? Well, that would be a possibility. And so what a person would have to say, what a person would have to say then is that Augustine was the first one to discover it. Yeah. And, and so if, if a person wants to take uh, that viewpoint, well, they're certainly welcome to it, uh, to take that viewpoint, but that's really, uh, that would seem to me like the tail wagging the dog, yeah. that he is the, the first one to discover it, especially when there is no, with the exception of Romans 9, there there really is no elaborate explanation of this. People could talk about uh, the Reformation that Luther and Calvin rediscovered justification by, by grace through faith. And say, well, you know, that wasn't taught for hundreds of years, and then they rediscovered it. But Paul clearly speaks, in, in Romans and Galatians especially, clearly speaks of justification by grace through faith, yeah. and that that was lost. And so that's rediscovering something that's that's clearly there. But election, you, you got a verse here, you got a verse there, a little reference here, and it's just kind of a patchwork uh, situation. So what I think is that is that people have... Um, 
in Poe's fifth century arguments, Augustine arguing against Pelagius and uh, 16th century arguments, Calvin and Luther arguing against medieval scholasticism uh, or whatever they were arguing against. And they're imposing that upon scripture. And, And so, so somebody could ask, well, well, how did why why did Augustine come up with this? Mm-hmm. Two reasons why Augustine came up with this viewpoint. Number one, because of what he was fighting against Pelagius. Sometimes when you fight against something, a natural reaction is to go to an extreme in fighting against it. A lot of people don't know that Augustine, in the early Augustine, believed in free will, but yeah. as the Pelagius heresy came up. And as he began to fight it, he began looking for biblical ammunition to fight it, but he went too far in his interpretation of verses. So that's one reason why Augustine came up with it. The second reason Augustine came up with it is that he forgot the narrative of Scripture. Hmm. He lost it. And he was no longer letting the story be the framework by which he would interpret Scripture. And that's what happened in history. No, that's good, and I think that if you, if you do consider the historical narrative, what the what the story has been, what people have adopted, when it comes to any doctrine in in particular, if you see something that's popping up, you know, in in history that that was not taught um, up to a certain point, I, I I do think that 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 is something to consider. I mean, that's 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 what we talk about when we talk to. Um, people who don't believe in the deity of Christ, who don't believe in the virgin birth, right. who don't believe in a resurrection of, of Christ, and still think that you can be a Christian if you don't believe those things. And I think that's where we have to use the historical value of what are the essentials of the faith? Um, what are, what, what are, even if, even, let's say that the doctrine of election is not, if you, if you don't believe that God has uh, meticulously determined who will and who will not go to heaven um, prior to the foundation of the world? That that um, in, in the way that a Calvinist would would use that term, that that that's not an essential of the, of the faith. And I think that you and I would probably agree on that. But that's something that that we can have a discussion on within the body of Christ to say: Is this is this um, actually what the narrative is? Is this what the story is? Is this what the Bible is teaching? Is this what has been taught throughout history, and I think that's where um, the value of of what <laughs> what the historical record is when it comes to the doctrine of election. Why that why that should be in the in the conversation? But yes, uh, it should be. You know. can, can I mention one other little historical point? Absolutely, and that is that um, I believe it was year five twenty nine in the Council of Orange that uh, in that church council the church. Uh, acknowledge uh, Augustine's uh, work in refuting uh, uh, Pelagianism and that it was condemned. Yeah, 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 yeah. At, at that same council, though, they said, however, we do not agree with Augustine in his views on predestination yeah. and election. Yeah. <laughs> so, Isn't that crazy? So people would do well to to study the, the history of this and the history of thinking. I think it would be helpful for people. Um, okay, well, where do you want to go from here? Do you, um, I mean, I've got um, some I'd ideas. like to go to Ephesians 1-4. That's where I was wanting to go. That's, okay. How about that? Look at that. So, uh, but in order to go there, let me just give a little bit of background 
in my Calvinist days, I used to argue Ephesians 1-4, but I have to confess that there was always a twinge in me because it didn't quite say what I wanted it to say. I wanted to say that um, now this verse I've had memorized for decades, and I can't think of it. So <laughs> uh, Ephesians 1-4, which says that um, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. I always wanted to say, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I always wanted to leave out the words, in him. And it always just kind of gnawed at me and bothered me. And and finally, I, I figured out why, and it has to do with the idea of corporate election. And so, if we can back up just for a couple of minutes... Uh, Israel was the elect nation, and they were chosen to be a light to the world. They were the servant nation. That's uh, that's what it means to be elect. It means to be the servant of God, to do his will. So they were chosen to be a light to the nation, and as we know, they failed. However, everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Just in the same way that we say everywhere that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the second Adam. And Jesus, I will say this, is also the, quote, second Israel. Everything that Israel was to be, Jesus was. In, In him, prophet, priest, and king, and the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. He and he is he is the word. He is he is the Torah in in embodiment. Um there was uh, the the Jews used to say that uh, that they were taking upon the yoke of the Torah upon them. Jesus said, "Take my yoke upon you." Uh, yeah. the, the Old Testament is is uh, is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Everything that Israel was to be was fulfilled and found true to be in Jesus. And it is interesting that he is called the chosen one. Jesus is the elect one. And so the corporate election of Israel narrowed down to one person, Jesus of Nazareth, who in his death and resurrection and enthronement fulfilled everything. And so that so that now he is the chosen one. Election was transferred to him. And so that the question then becomes, what constitutes being the people of God? So the first century debate, and this is what I I like to share with with anyone who will listen to me. (laughs) The first century debate was not about free will versus predestination or unconditional election. That is not what they were talking about. What they were talking about is who is the people of God? And how does one gain membership into the corporate body? And up until the coming of the Messiah, if a person was in Abraham or in Jacob, then they were elect. 
And so if Gentiles were coming in and uh, some who would go all the way and be circumcised, if they were coming in, then they were in Abraham. Then they were in Jacob. Therefore, they became elect ones. Paul in Ephesians 1.4 is telling us that our status as elect ones is no longer dependent upon being in Abraham. Those who are now chosen are the ones who are in Christ. And before the foundation of the world, God determined how that chosen how that chosen status would be set up. And the chosen status is Jesus Christ. Perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection, enthronement as king. He is the chosen one. And so those who are in the chosen one, they gain the status of being chosen ones also. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, 4. Okay, so I, uh, the obvious question is going to be, um, for either the Calvinist or the non-Calvinist, how, mm. how do you read Ephesians 1, 4? And I'll just read it here um, real quick. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God, uh, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the will, uh, according to the good pleasure of His will. And then verse six is the end of this sentence to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, how do you, how do you read uh, verse 5 and find um, and come to the conclusion that, that, that God has not predestinated you to be saved, but has predestinated you um, to be conformed to the, to the adoption of his children? So I guess the question is, when it talks about predestination and adoption of children— and, uh, and, and you see the conversation of the Calvinist saying, yes, God has predestined you to be adopted into the family of God as a child of God. Um, how do you take that and, and actually look at these, this, this, <laughs> this kind of run-on sentence and say, right. no, it's, it's corporate. It's describing <laughs> someone who is already in Christ and what you are predestined to once you're in Christ. So it seems you've yep. got those two sides of the conversation. One says, you've been predestined to be in, in Christ. The other says, those who are in Christ are pre predestined to be conformed to his image, and so on and so on. So where do we go from there? It's, it's a good question. When we look at uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse, especially verses 3 through 14, what we have in view here is eternity past and eternity future. And so the predestination is to our ultimate goal. And the adoption here is not talking about our salvation. The adoption here is talking about our adoption as sons at the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, Paul also makes that clear in Romans chapter 8. There are some verses that talk about adoption uh, in the present tense that we're now in God's family, no doubt about that. But there are at least four places in these verses um, that where Paul is looking toward our ultimate salvation, and he's doing it in the, in the verse 4 when he talks about that we would be holy and blameless before him. Well, mm -hmm. he's talking about 
right now we are positionally holy and blameless in Christ, but there will come a day when we are conditionally and completely holy and blameless, not just positionally, but through and through at the resurrection. And so his goal, he, he chose those in Christ to stand before him at the judgment one day, holy and blameless. Before time began, he predestined that certain people would be adopted into full sonship, full adulthood, and though and and though that that is those who are in Christ. And in verse five, he says he did it through Christ. A very similar phrase to being in yeah. Christ. And then down there's there's two or three other phrases in here that that show, especially um, verses um, fourteen, where it talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is given as a pledge of our inheritance, that's the future, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Paul is, is looking in the future. One day, our bodies are going to be redeemed. Well, we have, we have a re, one experience of redemption now through the blood of Christ, but, but there he's talking about the redemption of our body and the resurrection of our body. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, I answer it. That's, how, what's, that's what Paul is looking at here, the future. Yeah, that's the way that I see it as well. I'm actually looking at the second Helvetic Confession uh, and dealing with Ephesians 1.4 on predestination of God and the election of the saints. And they say this, We reject those who seek out Christ. Let me get the camera back here. So It says, okay. We reject those who seek out Christ, whether they are chosen, and what God has decreed concerning them from eternity. We are to hear the gospel and believe it and be sure that if we believe and are in Christ, we are chosen. We must listen to the Lord's invitation, come unto me, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, and believe in the unbounded love of God who gave his own son for the salvation of the world and will not, that one of these little ones should perish, in John three sixteen and Matthew eighteen fourteen. But he yeah. says here, let, uh, they say, let therefore Christ be the mirror in which we behold our predestination, we shall have a sufficiently evident and sure testimony of being written in the book of life if we live in communion with him and if we are true in true faith, he is ours and we are his. So I don't know if that kind of, um, if, if that's something that you would agree. I don't, where does the, the conversation of confessions come into um, any doctrine, I mean, whether it's predestination, whether it's election, whether it's faith in Christ, whether it's the deed of Christ, whatever the con typically confessions are, are giving you um, a set of, of beliefs. Uh, and, and the majority of confessions are written because there are certain things that you uh, are having to deal with in a certain period of time in history. And you're laying out, this is what we believe the Bible is teaching, and specifically on election, predestination, and those kinds of things. How important are confessions in the conversation of, well, this is what we believe, what we don't believe, when you see um, so many um, kind of conflicting confessions on this particular yeah. subject? I mean, yeah. how, do, how, do, how do you incorporate that into your, daily, into your own life? Well, I, I think the, the confessions of history are good. They're valuable. They, they show us how people have thought at different points, what they have uh, had to wrestle with the the issues that they wrestled with. I I am a member of an Anglican church, and the Anglicans have uh, 39 points, a 39 point confession, and I think points uh, 18 and 19 or 17 and 18 are are there on unconditional election and, and double predestination or something like that, yeah. which I don't agree with. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, but I, I 
I just think we have to honor them. We have to honor others we, and learn from them and try to understand why they thought the way they thought and be humble and learn from it and enter into conversation with it. Yeah. It's, it's just very, it's just very important to learn from others and, and to heed these confessions. Um, no, that's good. I, I've got a So we've got a question that came in online and I want to see if, if we can take this and get your take on it. Okay. This is from the Swiss Czech Bear. It says, maybe an ignorant question, but does the Bible say something about earthly election and democracy? Seems that democracy doesn't work. I don't know how um, you would answer that. What, what do you think the relationship between election and democracy is? Well, it sounds like we're getting into... Uh politics here <laughs> <laughs> we were joking about that before we actually went live um, maybe i was being prophetic i don't know <laughs> yeah hey yeah, yeah you said hey we're gonna be talking about election and donald trump tonight so get excited <laughs> <laughs> oh man i i'm not sure i i i enjoy reading about politics um you know a lot of these confessions were created during uh, monarchic times where there were kings and queens and strong heavy-handed authority although people were trying to gain more freedom yeah and uh, what a struggle it, it has has been um, I, I just think there's there's really a balance in the need to recognize the need for strong authority whether it is a a, uh, whether you live in a monarchy, uh, a balance between that and the rights of people and having democratic freedoms. And there are dangers both ways. With a monarchy, you know, I, I think the best form of, I, I, my, I had a history teacher tell me one time, the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> so, because you can really, because they can get a lot of things done that need to get done. But, but of course, a, a benevolent king, and that is that is great. But there's no guarantee that the next king is going to be benevolent. So that's that's the weakness with the monarchy system. And with the democratic system, the, the greatness of that is that it, it puts responsibility, uh, spreads it out among the people, and people should take responsibility. But if people aren't going to live according to a biblical viewpoint, it's going to fail, which is yeah. what we see happening in the United States. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm even talking about what the, what the question is about. Yeah. No, I don't. I think that's good. I'll I'll take a stab at it. I think um, sure. when you when you talk about election in a democracy, in a democracy in America, we have the people vote in who we want to represent us. Uh, obviously, we've got a lot of controversy today on whether or not. Right. Um, there's corruptions in our elections, whether it, that's a whole nother side of the conversation. But what I'm, the whole point is, if we're going to compare a democratic election process and who is representing us to uh, the doctrine of election within salvation, I think those are two separate things. Because I, I do think that, one, if you're going to use that terminology, you can say God has given you his vote, that he wants you in the kingdom. But... There's an element of responsibility that you have in in election to actually trust and believe what the gospel teaches in order for you to be put into Christ. So at the end of the day, I think that we're answering the question, how is one put into office in a democratic society versus how is one put into Christ within the kingdom of God 
and the, the that sort of the conversation of the spiritual kingdom. Now, I will also say this, when, when Christ comes back, and I believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ with him on earth, on the throne, um, and him reigning on earth, I don't believe that it's going to be a democracy. I don't believe it's going to be a republic. I don't believe that it's going to be um, a tyrannical um, sort of sovereign reign of Christ either. I believe that it's going to be a theocratic system with Christ, who is God in the flesh, on the throne, reigning perfectly, righteously, justly, um, in all the things that we hope to get out of uh, the, the, the sort of governmental systems that we've got today where we see that there are injustices, there are unrighteousness um, acts, there are certain things that we're like, gosh, there's got to be something better. Does the democracy work better than communism? Does it work better than Marxism? Does it work better than all of these different systems that we've come up with to say, what's better? This isn't working. What's better? I think that there's got to be a standard just like there's a standard for morality, there's a standard for um, anything in life, something that's objective. And I think that when it comes to election and it comes to um, a, a governmental system, that there is an objective standard on what is the best uh, way to rule. And I think that's going to be the rule and reign of Christ on earth, um, where you'll see the, the, perf the, the perfection side of that. But um, I, I think that there's a certain, there's a lot to be said in that conversation. I think it's a good question. Um, but yeah, there's, there's on the human side of it. There's always going to be corruption. There's always going to be some element of imperfection. But at the same time, God has seen fit within His sovereign rule to allow men to have um, authority and governing power in this life on this earth um, for a reason, and we're to be subject to that. the The time that we're not to be subject to that, or to actually take a stance against it, is if you see something that is clearly calling you to do what is violating. A command of God in the Bible, and I think at that point we can say, rightly and justly, like Daniel, like Romans thirteen, um, you know what we've got to obey God rather than man. But, anyways, yeah. that's kind of a maybe a sidebar. Thank you for thank you for doing such an excellent job on answering that question. I thought that was really good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about uh, that. That was yeah. helpful, and and I think it brings us to the actual final point that that I wanted to mention. Okay. Uh, in our conversation about election, and then probably, I, I know I need to wrap it up, okay. and you need to also, but um, the final point is that um, we, if those who are in Christ are the elect ones, if we have the status of being elect because, because we are in Christ, the question then becomes, well, how do we get into Christ? Yep. And it's through humility and through faith. Yeah. Now, our Calvinist brethren will argue against that and say, well, that's works. And and the answer is no. no. <laughs> that's a very, very weak argument. Faith is actually looking away from ourselves and looking to God, yeah. looking away from our ability. The same with humility. I have nothing in myself. It, it all comes from you. And so, um, so, the, so how we become elect ones is not and so what Paul was arguing, he wasn't arguing free will versus predestination. When we look at the New Testament, he was arguing the works of the law yep. versus the humility of faith in Christ. No doubt about it. So and so, um, I I just hope that everybody will keep that in mind, and that that's how a person becomes an elect one through faith in Christ. And and when we have that, then 
then we are predestined to one day stand before him holy and blameless. And he, he set that up before the foundation of the world, that that would be our destiny, yeah. to be holy and blameless before him, to be adopted, to have a resurrected body, to be kings and queens before yeah. him. Now, you get into the conversation of salvation, election, and what it means to be in Christ and what you have to look forward to um, as, as being in Christ with the promises of being in Christ with um, everything that that comes to your inheritance. I, I think that's a, a whole nother conversation. We've talked a lot about election. We've talked a lot about kind of the historical value of the conversation. Um, and uh, But we, we haven't talked about um, what is... So we've talked about you need to get into Christ. This is the vehicle for the promises. Um, these are the promises that are related to the elect who are in Christ, the elect one. Um, but if we could, I'd, yeah, let's just wrap it up tonight like we did the last time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see any better way to talk about the doctrine of election and uh, the destiny of where your soul will end up, whether it's heaven or hell, um, as given the gospel. I mean, and I'll, I'll leave that to you. I think that you do a good All job right. of that. Just if you could, for our viewers, our listeners, um, if you're looking for a great... If, if you're looking for the definition of the gospel, which we are telling you is what puts you into Christ and le- is the vehicle to uh, being conformed to the image, the resurrection, your new body, your inheritance, all of those things follow your faith and trust being put into Christ. Now, if you could lay out for us, what what is the gospel, Jonathan? Okay. Well, let me uh, approach it from the viewpoint of election. The, the starting point to explain the gospel from the viewpoint of election is that Jesus Christ is the elect one. He is the chosen one, which means that the chosen one for our salvation is not Moses, it's not Karl Marx, it's not um, the, Pharise- the Pharisaical system, the Pharisees, God did not choose the Pharisees. He did not choose the Sadducees. He did not choose the Zealots. He did not choose the Essene society. He did not choose Confucius. He did not choose Buddha. He did not choose Mohammed. Jesus is the chosen one. And the reason he is the chosen one is that only he lived a perfect life. The reason he is the chosen one is that only he died the sacrificial death for us and took the payment for our sins, our irresponsibility, our waywardness, our rebellion. He took it upon himself and made the payment for our sins. Only Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Years ago, I read about how supposedly one of Buddha's fingers was found. Uh, and it became a shrine, and Buddhists from, from many places of the world were going to the shrine to look at the, the, this bone reputed to be the finger of Buddha. Well, we have something far better than that. We, have a, we don't have a dead body. We have a resurrected body. Amen. Only Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and only Jesus Christ was enthroned to the right hand of God in his Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. And so he gives a commission and he gives a call right now 
to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, every person, male, female, young or old, he gives a call. I am the Lord. I am the perfect one. I am the chosen one. I did this for you. Will you submit your life to me? Will you cease your rebellion? Submit your life to me. And when you submit your life to me, I will grant you a full pardon, full forgiveness, and I will set you on a path that will lead you to one day stand before me, holy and blameless, in a resurrected body, as my full-fledged son or daughter of the king, and you will reign with me forever. And that's the good news. Your humanity, your life can be restored. Eternal life is yours through Jesus Christ. That's good. And I would uh, I would um, just piggyback off of that, guys, just to tell you, you the good news, gospel, liter- it means good news. Here's what the good news yes. is. You have a solution for your sin problem, and everything that Jonathan just laid out is uh, understanding and trusting in what Christ has done for you in your place. Uh, because there's no way you're getting to heaven without without that. There's And that's what the standard is. Uh, there's a perfect standard, and it's Christ. So if you are trusting in Christ today to be your your vehicle to get to heaven, um, he is your savior, why don't you um, write to us and tell us? I would love to know who you are, if there's anyone who um, today can say, like, you know what, I am trusting in Christ as my own personal savior. I'm not trying to do it on my own anymore. I can't do it. Uh, send me an email at talkingchristianityapologetics.com at gmail.com and my name is Josh you can write to me I'm sure Jonathan would love to know as well I'll make sure that that's communicated to him um, but the next the next the next step in your life as a Christian now is to start growing spiritually to understand who you are in Christ understand more about who Christ is and if you start with those two things you can spend the rest of your life studying the word loving the word and growing in Christ. Um, Amen. To just grow spiritually and and to be everything that God wants you to be. Uh, but anyways, Jonathan, I would like to uh, give you the last word, and we can wrap it up and and go from there. I'm not sure I have a last word except to say thank you uh, for, again for inviting me and for being part of this. I really enjoyed it. I always enjoy interacting with you, and I hope this has been beneficial and. That um, even if there's disagreement with anybody who listens, that we will uh, respect each other, that we will love each other, and that we will grow in God's Word together. That's good. Thanks again for coming on. I as well, man. I, I really enjoy our conversations. Um, it's been fun. Maybe we can set something up again in the future. I don't know if we'll uh, be able to talk about uh, total depravity or something like that. Maybe maybe there's another, another topic. But also, guys, Jonathan has got a podcast of his own, and a website I want you to be able to get in touch with him if you would like to. It's wgsministries.org, and that's uh, that's his website, WGS, Word of God Speak Ministries, wgsministries.org, and he's got a podcast. I believe it's uh, Stories of the Master. Is that right? That is correct, Stories of the Master. That's on the life of Christ, and then also we have a, um, a, a teaching portion uh, called Word of God Speak. Great. Go check that out. Now, what are you are you doing your dissertation for your PhD? Is that on election? What are, what are you doing your What are you studying there? Uh, I th- I think I'm going to do it on John six ah, forty four. That would be awesome. What were the verses on John six? 
uh, 6.44 says, no one can come to the Father, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Yeah. And all who are taught of God will come to God. Yeah. See, and, and I think, I'll just give you my take on that real quick. I, I think the Calvinist looks at that and says, um, all those who are drawn will come. And, and, and I think that um, when you look at, at the drawing of God and, and those who come, I, I think that you can only come to Christ if you're drawn of God. I, th I think it would be the job of the, the Calvinist to show that that drawing is limited, that it's exclusive. There's only a certain person that that drawing is, is, has, that it goes yes. out to. And I don't think yes. anyone has ever proven that. I think that what it shows is um, those, who, those who come are those who responded to the drawing of God, which would be through the appeal of the gospel, um, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but anyways, that's awesome. Maybe we can talk about John 6 next time. That'd be fun. Maybe so. <laughs> um, anyways. That'd be great. Well, that'll be it. Uh, thanks again for coming on. God You're bless. Welcome. I'm going to cut to our closing scene and go from there. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Well, this has been fun. We've talked about the doctrine of election real briefly, and uh, I want to give you a real brief update where we're going, what to expect in the next few weeks. This is com uh, coming up on the 29th. This is going to be a, a really fun conversation with Peter Gurry, James Snap, and Jeff Riddle. It's going to be a roundtable discussion uh, discussing the text of uh, the Bible, uh, whether it's the Textus Receptus. Is that the right text? Is it the uh, critical text within the NA28, the um, the, the critical text there, or is it, is it um, equitable eclecticism? Is it the Byzantine majority text? What is it? What is the right text um, that ha has been preserved throughout history that we can say is the perfect, infallible, inerrant word of God? And if you can't say that, can we at least say this is the word of God? This is going to be a fun conversation. We're going to look at some variants. We're going to look at some of the uh, disagreements that um, these guys and these categories of textual um, adherence would fall into and have an open discussion on it. It's going to be somewhat structured, but it's going to be profitable. I think it's a discussion that really needs to be had, and we're going to do that. Then on the 31st, I've got a debate with Louis Dizon, who's a Catholic apologist. We're going to be discussing, discuss, <laughs> discussing the doctrine of justification. So now then February 7th, Chris Date from Rethinking Hell, he and I are going to kind of have an open dialogue, debate, discussion, whatever you want to call it on uh, eternal conscious torment versus uh, annihilationism and conditional immortality. That'll be a fun one as well. Then on the 16th, uh, Randy Krakowski, you've seen him before. We're gonna, he's, he's a uh, self-proclaimed atheist agnostic, and we're going to be doing a debate on the origin of morality. Uh, so a lot to look forward to, a lot of fun things coming up. Be sure and like, share, and uh, rate us if you haven't had a chance. Please Please do that Send, and be, reach out to us if you have a question or something. TalkingChristianityApologetics at gmail.com. And uh, you can also send us a voicemail if you want to do it that way. Just go to the description of any podcasting platform and there should be a link in there to uh, that you can click to leave me a voicemail. So anyways, God bless guys. I hope that this has been a, um, a good topic, a profitable conversation on the doctrine of election. And we'll talk to you soon.